Good morning. I'm James Hellman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, July 17th. In today's news, the House votes to condemn President Trump's racist tweets. The uproar has derailed the rollout of the administration's new immigration plan. And Planned Parenthood ousts its president after less than a year on the job. But first, the big idea. Former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens died last night at a hospital in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He was 99. A moderate Republican from Chicago, he evolved into the leader of the court's liberal wing over 35 years on the high court before retiring in 2010 as the third longest serving justice ever. Justice Stevens left his stamp on nearly every area of the law, writing the court's opinions in landmark cases on government regulation, he gave us the Chevron Doctrine, intellectual property, and civil liberties. He also spoke for the court when it held presidents accountable under the law, writing the 1997 decision that required Bill Clinton to face Paula Jones's sexual harassment suit, and the 2006 opinion that barred George W. Bush from holding military trials for prisoners at Guantanamo Bay without congressional authorization. Stevens was born in Chicago on April 20th, 1920. His family lived in Hyde Park, right next to the University of Chicago. His grandfather, James Stevens, was the founder of the Illinois Life Insurance Company and owned the LaSalle Hotel, which the justice's father, Ernest, managed. In 1927, the family opened the Stevens Hotel in Chicago, which was billed as the largest hotel in the world at that time. John Paul enjoyed a privileged childhood. He attended the best schools. He met celebrities like Charles Lindbergh and Amelia Earhart at the hotel. And he was lucky enough to be in the crowd at Wrigley Field on October 1st, 1932, when Babe Ruth hit his famous called shot home run off Cubs pitcher Charlie Root. But the Stevens businesses that made them so affluent went bankrupt during the Great Depression. And Justice Stevens's father, his grandfather, and his uncle, Raymond Stevens, were all indicted on charges of alleged financial misconduct. Shortly after the indictment, James Stevens had a stroke, so he was excused from trial. Raymond Stevens committed suicide. A jury convicted Ernest Stevens in 1933 of embezzling $1.3 million. But his conviction was overturned in 1934 by the Illinois Supreme Court, which sharply criticized prosecutors for bringing the charges, noting that there was, quote, not a scintilla of evidence of any concealment or fraud attempted. The family had always said they just take it had taken a loan from the life insurance company to support the hotel. But the experience reduced the wealthy family to a lower middle-class lifestyle. It also taught Justice Stevens an enduring lesson that he brought with him to the bench about the harm that even well-to-do citizens can suffer from overzealous prosecution and other flaws in our justice system. His experience during World War II also really shaped his worldview and eventually his jurisprudence. He joined the Navy as an intelligence officer on December 6th, 1941. That's right, the day before Pearl Harbor was attacked. He liked to joke in later years that his commissioning had provoked the Japanese to strike because they took it as a sign of American desperation. He spent the war at Pearl Harbor working as a signals intelligence officer. His specialty was traffic analysis, the compilation of Japanese messages to discern patterns in communication that might help identify or locate enemy forces. 
He was awarded the Bronze Star for helping to decode a particularly difficult Japanese radio call sign. His work allowed us to shoot down Japanese Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto's airplane. This strategic coup was only possible because Stevens had decoded Japanese radio transmissions that had been intercepted. But the targeting killing of Yamamoto really troubled a young Stevens. He explained a few years ago that it sowed his first doubts about capital punishment, which he considered another form of deliberate killing by the state of a named individual. When Gerald Ford first put Stevens on the court, he was pretty conservative. Indeed, he cast a fifth vote to permit states to reauthorize the death penalty just four years after the court had invalidated it. But as the country, the court, and the Republican Party moved right, Justice Stevens did not. He began to take a more favorable view of affirmative action, and he started fighting to limit the scope of the death penalty, citing his World War II experience. In 2002, Justice Stevens wrote the majority opinion in a 6-3 decision that banned the death penalty for the mentally disabled. In 2005, after years of condemning the death penalty for offenders younger than 18, which the court had upheld in 1989, Justice Stevens persuaded Anthony Kennedy. He won Kennedy's vote, the critical fifth vote for his side, and capital punishment for minors is no longer allowed in this country today as a result. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, a divided House voted last night to condemn President Trump's racist remarks telling four minority congresswomen to go back to their ancestral countries, with all but four Republicans dismissing the rebuke as harassment, while many Democrats pushed their leadership for harsher punishment of the president. The imagery of the 240 to 187 vote was stark, a diverse Democratic caucus cast the president's words as an affront to millions of Americans and descendants of immigrants, while Republican lawmakers, the vast majority of them white men, stood with Trump against a resolution that rejected his, quote, racist comments that have legitimized fear and hatred of new Americans and people of color. All four of the Republicans who broke ranks may be gone after next year. Will heard from Texas as the lone black Republican in the House. He represents hundreds of miles of the southern border, and Trump lost his district by a huge margin in 2016 and will do so again in 2020. He barely survived by a few hundred votes in 2018. Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania is considered one of the most vulnerable incumbents up for re-election next year in the Philly suburbs. Susan Brooks of Indiana has already announced her retirement, and many expect Fred Upton of Michigan to retire as well. Justin Amash from Western Michigan, who quit the GOP earlier this month and has called for Trump's impeachment, also voted for the resolution. The debate played out on a raucous House floor as lawmakers attacked one another's motives and repeatedly questioned whether their opponents had violated longstanding rules of decorum. Those rules ultimately were changed. They literally changed the rules after Republicans challenged Speaker Nancy Pelosi's use of the word racist. While Democrats united behind the resolution that passed, they were unanimous in supporting it, many of her rank-and-file members said they want Pelosi to do more. Dozens signed on to a censure resolution that was filed by Steve Cohen from Tennessee, who called Trump's comments opprobrious and deserving of a more serious rebuke. A thornier possibility, though, for Pelosi came from Al Green from Texas. He filed articles of impeachment against Trump last night under special procedures that could bring them up for a vote by the end of the week. 
That's a dilemma for Pelosi, who continues to resist calls for impeaching Trump since the Senate won't take anything up. Senior Democratic aides expect the speaker will move to either kill the resolution or refer it to committee, effectively sidelining the matter. But either option would pose a difficult vote for her caucus, of which more than 80 members have supported launching an impeachment inquiry. Number two, that floor fight last night in the House over the racism resolution forced the cancellation of a meeting at the White House in which the president was going to talk with top Republican congressional leaders about his new immigration plan. Senior Republicans in the Senate on Tuesday immediately began downplaying the prospects of the new White House proposal, an effort that's being led by senior advisor Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law. They haven't even been briefed on the details, but they say it's dead on arrival. One GOP senator told us there's just no bandwidth to debate it. A senior Republican aide said Mitch McConnell doesn't want to waste time on legislation that has no chance of garnering 60 votes to advance in the Senate. But in a cabinet meeting yesterday, Kushner previewed details of the 620-page legislation and said that he's worked with roughly two dozen GOP Senate offices to try and draft the bill. Apparently, though, he's consulted no Democrats. One administration official said that about 10 Senate Republicans will co-sponsor the legislation. White House aides have previously described a new point-based system that ranks prospective immigrants on factors like education levels, English-speaking abilities, and professional skills. Meanwhile, a group of plaintiffs led by the ACLU filed suit last night against the Trump administration in U.S. District Court in San Francisco in an attempt to halt the implementation of the new policy that disqualifies most asylum seekers who pass through Mexico before reaching the United States. Number three, the president of Planned Parenthood was unexpectedly forced out of her job yesterday afternoon in a dispute over her management style on the direction of the nation's largest women's reproductive rights organization amid growing political and legal challenges to abortion. Planned Parenthood's board met an emergency session for several hours on Tuesday and approved Lena Wen's immediate departure just eight months after she got the job. The organization faces growing financial peril from a Trump administration rule that took effect on Monday, barring federally funded family planning clinics from providing referrals for abortions. It's also under attack by anti-abortion lawmakers at the state and federal level, and it's threatened by the prospect that the 1973 ruling, Roe v. Wade, that legalized abortion could be overturned by the post-Brett Kavanaugh new conservative majority on the court. A person aware of the Planned Parenthood's board's perspective said the organization had tried to work with Wen for six months to correct problems with her management style. This person said it resulted in serious conflicts and that she had difficulty working with staff. The organization announced the appointment of Alexis McGill-Johnson, a former board chair and the head of an anti-discrimination organization, as acting president, and said the search for a new president will begin early next year. A Planned Parenthood spokeswoman said that the terms of Wen's departure had been negotiated over several weeks, but then Wen went on Twitter and said that was a lie. And she lashed out at the board. Quite an internal fight with so many external challenges. And that's the Daily 202 for Wednesday, July 17th. Thanks as always for listening. I'd really love to know what you think of this podcast, what you like or don't like. If you could take our survey, I'd be really grateful. And you could be entered into our sweepstakes for five $100 Amazon gift cards. Just go to WashingtonPost.com slash 202 survey. WashingtonPost.com slash 202 survey. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you tomorrow.